This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. For nearly two years on this program, we followed a pretty strict and specific model. I interview a scientist from one field, and then another from a completely different field, and then I introduce them to one another. And we seek to build interdisciplinary connections. But this is a half-hour-long program, and those conversations, man, they go by so fast. And so lately, I've found myself wanting to dive deeper. So while we're not going to abandon the model that we built this show on, not entirely, we are going to start mixing things up a little bit more. Today, for instance, we're going to take a deep dive with a scientist who understands depth in a visceral way. Tammy Rittenauer is a geologist, a paleoclimatologist, and the director of the Luminescence Lab at Utah State University. We'll have some time today to get into what each of those roles means, but we're going to start our conversation today by talking a little bit about a research opportunity that emerged more than 50 years after a secret U.S. military project was buried in the ice in northern Greenland. Tammy Rittenauer, thanks for being here. Thank you. What did you think when you found out about this Cold War project, this project that had intended to put nuclear missiles in underground launch facilities in Greenland? It sounds like something out of a 007 novel. Yes, and it, 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 it was, actually. Um, I had known about the site. We, as paleoclimate studies, we have samples from the ice core that was collected from this long runway where they were storing nuclear missiles. And they collected a core um, just for scientific reasons since they had already dug into the ice sheet. So I had um, already known about the core, but what I didn't know is that instead of just retrieving 1.3 kilometers of ice, they kept going into the basal sediments underneath the ice sheet. And that is what we were asked to look at. So you were looking at something from, what, like almost a mile down, right, into the Earth's crust, but it was extracted decades and decades ago. Yeah, it was extracted in the 1960s. What did they do with it back 50 years ago? Like in the 1960s, because it was extracted for scientific purposes in the midst of this sort of like, you know, spy thriller situation. So they, they recognize that ice can tell you a lot about past climate and past conditions. And so the very first ice core collected was collected from the Camp Century ice worm, Project Iceworm location. And that core was originally only analyzed for its ice. But in addition to 1.3 kilometers of ice, there was about six meters of sediment underneath the ice that was also collected and then just forgotten about for decades and decades. And this reemerged fairly recently. International team of scientists came together to study it. Do you remember when you were told about the soil sample? Yeah. Yeah, I have a colleague, Paul Beerman, out of University of Vermont, and he contacted me. I think we were at a Geological Society of America meeting in Phoenix, and he said, hey, we have this sediment, and we're throwing everything we've got at it because there's no other samples from underneath the Greenland ice sheet. None? None. No. And this thing had been sitting there for decades. How did it get lost for all that time, do you think? There was one of the scientists on the coring mission was a guy, Chester Langway, and he was out at the University of SUNY Buffalo in New York State. And he, because he was on the coring team, he actually had collected some of the ice core and had it in his freezer in Buffalo. 
like in his freezer, like in his home freezer? Or? No, in a scientific. In his, okay, so it was, it was an official freezer. Yes, <laughs> yes, it was an ice core freezer, keeping the ice core at frozen conditions for 50 to 60 years. So that theoretically this thing is still pretty close to the way it was decades and decades ago. Exactly, yep. So let's take a step back here and explain optically stimulated luminescence, because this is obviously very important to what you do. You run a lab dedicated to luminescence, and this is why they wanted you on this team. What is optically stimulated luminescence? Okay, so it's a dating method. So we can date the last time that sediment was exposed to light, which for these samples was when there wasn't a Greenland ice sheet. Prior to this 1.6 kilometer thick ice sheet forming, there was land, and that sediment was exposed to light. But then it became buried by ice for, um, we expected, millions of years that it, the ice sheet had sat there. Now, and we're going to get to that in a second, mm-hmm. I'm curious though, like what drew you to luminescence? How did you get involved in that? Take me back. So luminescence dating, I used it for my PhD. So it can date the last time sediment was exposed to light. And I was dating sediments in the Mississippi River Valley that were Ice Age sediments. So from the Pleistocene up to 100,000 years ago to look at how the Mississippi River responded to melting of the Laurentide Ice Sheet, which is the Ice Age fig giant ice sheet that covered most of Canada and advanced into southern Illinois. So when you found out about this dating method, was it a dating method that had been around for some time and that just wasn't getting a lot of use? Or was it a dating method that was new and emerging at that time? Because there's still not a lot of people who do this. That's correct. So the luminescence dating was probably first discovered in the 1970s, um, the property that minerals will luminesce or glow. And they glow in proportion to how much radiation they've been exposed to. So after they've been exposed to sunlight, sunlight will release the luminescence signal. And that's why we call it optically stimulated luminescence, because light resets the signal. After the sand grains have been buried, they are exposed to radiation in the surrounding sediments, and that builds up the luminescence signal. And it builds up in direct proportionality to how old the sample is. So it's a really useful technique, but you're right. It has not been around that long. It's one of the newer dating techniques that we have. And the seminal paper that describes the method that I use was published in the year 2000. I started my dissertation in 1999. So this was really sort of new and emerging at the time, at least in terms of like the contextual relationship that people were building with this tool for dating was still fairly new. So you got to be kind of a pioneer in this. You're still a pioneer in this. Yeah, I guess I'm definitely the first person to date the sediments underneath Greenland. And yeah, it is new. It's fun and exciting. There are not that many labs that do this dating method. And so that's why I was invited on board, because you need an expert in the technique. And in North America, we only have a handful of labs that do this. So what goes through your mind as a geologist when you get that call, when you and somebody says, hey, we want you on this project to date this sample that is singular, is the one and only it's got to feel like winning the lottery a little. 
it's kind of nerve-wracking because it is it's a rare sample we're not gonna it'll cost millions and millions of dollars to try to recollect a sample like this and no one's done it since so it's also one of the first things that came to mind was the description of how the samples were stored this guy um, Chester Langway had stored them in glass cookie jars, basically. The sediment at the bottom of the ice core, and my dating technique dates the last time sediment was exposed to light. So oh, gosh. He, they were not stored. Back in the 60s, the technique was barely developed and definitely not the technique I use for luminescence So people dating. wouldn't worry about exposing these samples to light. No, no. So, but luckily these samples were frozen. So the innermost sediment in the little cookie jars has not been exposed to light. So the core of the core, so to speak. Yeah. Yep. The center of the core. Oh, thank goodness. Yes. Yes. And that, that was good. Unfortunately, my colleagues had not thought of luminescence dating when they collected subsamples from these glass cookie jars. Oh, no. And so they, they didn't keep them in the dark. And they arrived in my lab in little, tiny little, you know, maybe an inch long by half an inch thick, little tiny slivers of sediment. I'm used to dealing with something the size of a Coke can filled with sediment. So much, much smaller. And they arrived in clear Ziploc baggies. So did that impact the accuracy of the dating that you were able to do? Yeah, I think one of the samples um, is coming back really young. And so I think that one was exposed to too much light while sitting in the cookie jars or um, during some subsampling. But one of them appears to be pristine. And it appears that after I took the sample and kept it frozen by having it over ice and would just shave off the outsides that I could see were exposed to light, the interior seems to be fairly intact and light safe. And so this brings us to the sort of like curveball of this whole thing. This intact sample gives you a date, and that date suggests that these samples may have last been exposed to light about 400,000 years ago. And that sounds like a long time ago, except for the fact that it challenges some assumptions that we have, right? What are those assumptions? Yeah, yeah. And so the 400,000 was the initial results. And we've now pushed it back to maybe 600 or 700,000, but much, much younger than two and a half million years ago, which is when we started dipping into the current ice age conditions. So the implications are that Greenland is not as stable as we had thought. Now, so just to, to be very specific about this, what this suggests is that this dirt that we thought should have been exposed to light two and a half million years ago or so was actually exposed to light about 600,000 years ago, which means that the ice had been melted down at that point, at least for a short amount of time. Yeah, there wasn't a Greenland ice sheet, at least not one as large as the current Greenland ice sheet when that sediment was last exposed to light. This has got to be freaking people out because this challenges a notion that we have that this has been a stable ice sheet for millions of years. It should freak people out because one of the big climate concerns today with global warming is what happens if we melt the Greenland ice sheet. 
and how will that affect sea levels globally and the cascading effects of climate change that is linked to higher sea levels and other feedbacks within the climate system. Because what this suggests is that the Greenland ice sheet is more vulnerable than we had thought, even more vulnerable than we had thought. And even as it is under the old assumptions about how old it was, we were we were worried about it, right? Yeah, yeah, we were worried about it for futuristic concerns with current climate change. But to know that it melted under natural conditions when the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere were, you know, 100 ppm lower than current levels. And this ice sheet isn't just pretty and mysterious. It also accounts for a lot of water, like a lot of water. What happens if this thing melts? Well, not only would sea level rise, which is one of our biggest concerns, because all of our current mega cities across the globe, where most of populations live, are within three to five meters of sea level. So all of that goes underwater and it displaces people. Farmlands and agricultural conditions are inundated. Our major ports are closed. Um, But it also affects the ocean circulation, atmospheric conditions, distribution of ice on the Earth's surface affects radiation that we absorb. So if you remove big masses of ice, it leads to cascading effects where the Earth absorbs more energy, which then warms up. Because these ice are reflectors right now, right? Correct. Yep. And so instead of the radiation reflecting and going back into space, it absorbs into the land and that that becomes problematic over time in terms of global warming. Yeah, yeah, our planetary albedo will change as we have less snow and ice. One of the things that I think that climate scientists worry about quite a bit is that discussions of climate variability over time can be used by those who want to shoot holes in the overwhelming evidence of human-caused climate change in our modern world. Did you think about that? And it's not not as a reason not to publish or anything like that, but did you think about like when you found this information, like, oh my gosh, this thing actually was melted 600,000 years ago. Did you think, oh great, now we're going to have to deal with the people who say, oh, well, look, climates are always variable and it's no big deal. Uh, No, no. For us, when we look at this, we go, oh, my God, this ice sheet and other ice sheets like the down in Antarctic ice sheet and the West Antarctic ice sheet and some of the ice shelves are more sensitive than we thought. We only have a small time period of human observations. And we think of these big giant ice sheets as just always having been there and maintaining their course. But if they are more sensitive to minor climate changes, we have a bigger surprise in store for the future. Were you wowed when you found out, when you saw the numbers? I mean, did you want to, I assume you ran the numbers again, but was your first impulse, oh, I have to run the numbers again because clearly this can't be right? Well, we have tried other dating methods also. And so it's not just my ages that are coming back younger than expected. We also have samples of cosmogenic dating, which is dating kind of like luminescence, where it's looking at the last time sediments were exposed to cosmic rays, which are only being exposed at the Earth's surface. So again, looking at something where you have to remove the ice sheet to get that signal. And those ages are also saying in, you know, in the past one million years, 
those sediments were exposed to light. So your dating is aligning with other people's dating. How cool is it to work with all of these people across these fields doing these different dating methods and then to see that they, they line up so well? Well, it's, it's surprising. As scientists, we're always skeptical of our own methods and our own results and want confirmation that other people see the same thing. And so, yeah, it's great that we're getting multiple lines of evidence. And this has been done with no funding. And so one of the big things will be to actually go back and open another cookie jar. There were about 20, no, 30 cookie jars of these sediments. We were allowed to open only two cookie jars. And so if we have more samples and more research into these, we can get better results. So everything we have right now is based on only a couple of months of work and very small subsamples and quite rushed to just see what, what we would find. And the stuff in the cookie jars, we've always said like it, it's rare. It's the only core that deep from underneath the Greenland ice sheet. But just to kind of put this into context, I couldn't just go to Greenland right now and start digging, right? I mean, it, it took a massive U.S. government effort in order to get these things back in the 1950s. Yes, yes, definitely. And there are other cores that have been collected from Greenland. There are about four or five cores that have been collected through the ice sheet after this Camp Century Project Ice Worm core was collected. Um, it became obvious that these records have a lot of information. So we have other ones, but every time they reached the bottom of the ice sheet, they just stopped. Because probably the coring methods don't really, if you core through ice, it's different than coring through dirt. And so to prevent their drills from getting injured, they would reach the bottom and stop. So this, this is why, I mean, these samples are pretty rare and why you are only allowed access to a few of them. When you're handling these samples, because they are so rare, what is that like? Well, I, you know, I, I got dry eyes and made sure I kept my little tiny chip of the cookie that was from the cookie jar completely frozen. And I have saved every single sand grain from the samples, whether I know it was exposed to light or not, because it might come in handy with doing another type of analysis that I maybe hadn't thought of. Or that um, hasn't even been developed yet. That's, yeah. that's a possibility because at the time these things were taken, your technique hadn't been developed yet or matured yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most of the techniques applied were not available at the time. Like they're looking at DNA in these sediments and seeing what are the biomarkers and the evidence of past things that were living on Greenland. We have pollen. We have tons of plant material. The Greenland was quite green at the time before the ice sheet formed, and there was all kinds of little plant material and pollen grains and isotopic values from the poor water frozen in the sediment, mineral analyses. And we're throwing the book at these tiny little subsamples. So you're getting all of this from something that you know, kind of went missing for a really long time. Does it make you wonder what else might be out there? Yeah, yeah, who knows? It just, it took digging. It took someone reading the footnote of a paper that said when coring, they continued for another six meters and then researching. But the guy who stored all this in Buffalo, New York, he retired and he shipped all his stuff to Copenhagen, Denmark, where they have an ice repository. 
even those guys had kind of forgotten about these extra cookie jars that came along with the ice. So. I, I just look, this starts as kind of like this, like we said earlier, like this 007, you know, Cold War experiment thing. And then it's sort of like this mystery novel following where it went and how it got there. And somebody had to figure out where it was after reading about it in these notes. It's pretty incredible. When you started your academic career in geology and biology, and then you, you moved on to focus on glacial geology, were you already aware that things were going to be this exciting? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, like, with, with all due respect to your field, like, people don't say geology in, you know, like, layman company, and people don't go like, whoa, geology, right? And I think it's exciting, and I know you think it's exciting, but... But this sort of like Cold War stuff and the, you know, the mystery stuff, it's it's fun, right? Oh, it, yeah, it is. Well, it depends. Most kids had a rock collection when they were younger. And, and there is interest in the natural system and in in the earth. And so, yeah, um, you get older and you get more into your own things. But We, I, we get jaded about rocks. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Let me ask you, what's what's next for you? Oh, well, we hope to get more of these samples. Um, so there was a, a like a rescue mission to go to Denmark and to break into the ice core lab and find where all these little cookie jars were stored to just get samples to see, are they viable? Are they still the way they were described as having been collected? The descriptor, I was not there, was that there was the samples, the sediment smelled like diesel fuel. Because they, back in the old days, they didn't know about environmental concerns. So to keep the ice core open, they would dump diesel fuel down the hole so it wouldn't freeze. And so, so they opened up these boxes and opened up these cookie jars and almost passed out from the smell of diesel fuel from the 1960s just sitting in them. So you'd like to go find one of those or get your hands on one of the cookie jars that hasn't been opened and have the whole experience of smelling the no, diesel fuel? No, and... no, no. <laughs> but, but just um, I think if I had, we had two samples. There's evidence that there are two layers of sediment underneath the ice sheet. One of them is older and one is younger. And my upper sample that was supposed to be younger, I think, was exposed to too much light for my technique. So it would be great if I can get another sample that we can get an age for the upper sample in addition to the lower one. I wanted to turn back to where we started this conversation about this secret Cold War base. Uh, it's a little strange to think that we're only getting this look at the deep past because the U.S. was trying to get the edge in a potential coming nuclear apocalypse. Did you find yourself reflecting on that as you were studying these samples? We actually, in science, have learned a lot and gained a lot of technology through military action. So we know about a lot of our dating techniques to know how old rocks are have to do with radio active decay, which was developed in the techniques because of our push for the nuclear arms race. So this site is kind of one of those gems that have been turned around. And because we are in the U.S., things like this don't remain secret and don't remain closed. And so we get access to the information. We live in an increasingly democratic world. It doesn't always seem like that, but that's sort of the, the tide of time has brought us to that place. 
Are you curious about what other sites might be out there, uh, you know, in other countries from other governments that might reveal themselves in the coming years that maybe there's another core sample somewhere else that that the Russians put there? Maybe, maybe. I know another place I've worked that's very similar to Greenland is Antarctica. And our, our base, the U.S. base at McMurdo, is a military base that was put there for Cold War reasons. Um, but today is one of the biggest science bases um, around. And so to get to go down there, everything is based on science. The access to Antarctica is based on military um, support. And so there's probably all kinds of um, secret samples that were collected. But most of the time, you involve a scientist if you do that. And scientists are more open to sharing their information. You teach an undergraduate course in geomorphology and you mentor graduate students. What what are you hoping to inspire in them? To be a good scientist it means to keep your eyes open and to be open to to different questions, but also to be a good citizen, as to have good scientific literacy and to understand how things operate. Most of my undergraduate students are not going to be a scientist. We can't have that many scientists in the world. Um, but if they're well-informed and critical thinkers, then that's what I want. That's Tammy Rittenauer. She's part of a team working to better understand the history of Greenland's ice sheet and its potential future in a warming world. Tammy, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.